one of the most glamorous careers is meant to be modeling. We see models on television from time to time, at kind of uh, on the catwalks and at uh, glamorous uh, events like London Fashion Week and so on. If you're anything like me, when you see these uh, events on the, on the news, you often end up wondering whether or not anyone actually ever sells the kinds of weird-looking clothes that these models wear. And even more, if, if anyone walking down the street would ever actually wear anything like that. The uh, egg samples here are actually fairly tame. When I was looking on the internet for this, I uh, found what's the world's first edible address that was made entirely of uh, chips. I suppose it's a bit okay if, if you were out and you got hungry or something. The other thing is that the life of a model gets a fairly good press. There's a lot of foreign travel. There seem to be lots of uh, parties. It's well paid. And they always seem to mix with the uh, rich and the famous, the opulent and the glamorous. Lots of them seem to have uh, a picture perfect bodies without any fat or wrinkles, and they managed to pull off looking good with such effortless ease. Even the protestations from someone like Naomi Campbell that it's actually quite stressful and that it's actually quite hard work are generally met with a disbelief and incredulity from the man on the street. In verse 7 of the passage in front of us, the Apostle Paul calls the church at Thessalonica a model a church. He says that they became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, by that, he's not saying that they were glamorous or that they were beautiful or, or that they were well-off or well-honed or anything like that. Instead, what he means is that they've become a good ex example, a good copy, a good model for other people, other Christians round about them, to imitate. And it's hard for us to underestimate just how encouraging it must have been for the Apostle Paul to be able to say that. Uh, if we uh, turn back to Acts and read there in Acts chapter 17, the account of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica, we uh, discover that after he had started there, Paul actually had to leave Thessalonica early under a bit of a cloud. He had uh, encountered some incredible suffering and opposition and persecution. And so he was forced to leave before he had finished his whole program of preaching and uh, teaching. And he really felt like he had got the church off to a good start. After that, he b began, though, to hear some encouraging reports. And so his aim, when he wrote this part of the letter to the Thessalonians was to encourage them. His aim in writing here is to encourage them. Paul loves them. These letters are filled with pastoral warmth. He wants n nothing more to help them and encourage them in their growth in the gospel. And we can see that he does this in two ways. First of all, if you look just very quickly at the verse 2 and 3, we can, we, we can see that he gives thanks to them remembering them in his prayers. So he lets them, them know that he's praying for them in order to encourage them. And then, secondly, from verse 4 down to verse 10, he re recounts to them the circumstances of their 
conversion to them, to encourage them by reminding them of what God has done in them and through them. And it's really this second aspect that I want to pick up this morning. All I really want to do on this, my final sermon, is to encourage you, to remind you of three vitally important truths about the gospel from the way that the Thessalonians heard it, the way they received it, and the way that they spread it. And so all we'll really be doing here is looking at those three main stages as the Apostle Paul from this text draws our attention to how the gospel arrives, how the gospel takes root, and how the gospel spreads. So then that's uh, where, where we're going and in doing that, we as the church here and as uh, uh, individual Christians and others too, will get a clearer, a clearer picture, a clear model of how the gospel affects us in our lives and our church as well. So then, um, first of all, I want to look at how the gospel arrives. And you can see this especially in verse 5. There, the Apostle Paul tells us how the gospel arrived in Thessalonica. He says that he and his companions came and preached the good news about Jesus, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and it says with deep conviction. I think the first thing here we need to see is that it was actually people who spread the gospel. It was human agents that God used. There was no gospel at Thessalonica before the arrival of Paul, Silas and Timothy. Even then, God didn't parachute the gospel in or use angels, but he used human beings to spread his message. Then secondly, it says, the gospel came with words. It's true that it didn't only come with words, but the fact that words were used, the fact that it came with words, is still something that's very important. I guess the reason for that is that it's impossible to explain anything in a way that folk will understand unless you you use words. That's the way that we communicate with each other. We communicate through sentences and vocabulary. Therefore, the only way that anyone is ever going to understand the truth about Jesus is if someone actually explains it to them. That's why I think St. Francis of Assisi was slightly wrong-headed when he said, preach the gospel, use words if you have to. Now, we need to live a, a Christian life, clearly, but we always have to preach the gospel with words. Otherwise, folk just can't understand, they, they, they can't hear, and they can't respond to it. Words are essential. Thirdly, it says that the gospel came with power. I guess the other thing about words is that they can be ignored, they can be disregarded, or they can be misunderstood. However, when they're hammered home with the Holy Spirit, they come with real force and real power. And that's what obviously happened when the Apostle Paul and his friends preached in Thessalonica. I guess the Apostle Paul's talks were maybe the kinds of talks where everyone came out saying, that was incredible. I felt like I was the only person there and the preacher was speaking straight to me. You see, that kind of thing is evidence of God at work. Human words are being pushed home with a divine power. The Holy Spirit, if you like, is screwing them into a people's lives in a really meaningful way that they can't avoid and can't escape. There it says, uh, fourthly, that the gospel came to the Thessalonians with great conviction or assurance on the part of the 
messengers. When Paul spoke, people said, that guy really believes what he's talking about. He says it with sincerity and truth. He really believes it. It came with great conviction and great assurance on the part of the speaker. You see, Paul was deeply convinced of the truth and the relevance of what he was saying. And so he came across with a real kind of seriousness and integrity in a way that had a deep spiritual impact on the people who were listening. Um, it wasn't that long ago that a salesman came to my door one tea time to try to sell me a new combined gas and electricity energy package. And I'll not bring the company into a dispute by saying who it was. He had all the chat, all the statistics, and all the sales patter down to a fine art. The problem was, though, that I just didn't trust the guy. He seemed to be mouthing all the right words, rather than really deeply believing in his product. When I asked any questions, he never really seemed to come up with a good answer. And worst of all, he gave the impression that he was the kind of person who would sell his own grandmother if it would benefit him. And you see, that's how lots of people see us as Christians. Therefore, it's incumbent on us to be like Paul. Our words need to be carefully chosen and accurate. We need to really believe in the product deep down in our hearts. And if that's not there, we need to do something about it. Our demeanour is to be serious and genuine and sincere. No one listens to a dodgy salesman, do they? Then fifthly, what Paul said was backed up with his life. He says that the Thessalonians knew how he lived among them for their sake. That is, he wasn't in it for himself, but exhibited care and sensitivity towards the people he was talking to. The Thessalonians knew how Paul and his companions had lived and could confirm that it was in a way characterized by God and by the work and power of the Holy Spirit. So then, I guess the first question that we need to ask ourselves is this. Have you heard this gospel? Have you heard the gospel put across with clarity and conviction and simplicity? Have you heard it with a sense of God speaking straight to you in your experience and your heart? Have you heard the gospel come to you with the power of the Holy Spirit? You see, there's a lot of religion in the world. There are a lot of different groups that are trying to secure your attention and your allegiance. However, I think Paul's saying here that when you hear the real thing, it really captures you. The truth about Jesus, when you hear it preached with the power of the Holy Spirit, is something that just leaps out and grabs you by the throat. It could be a friend or a work colleague who explains the message to you with sincerity and genuine conviction. Or you might even hear it here at church. However, the important thing is that you actually hear the message about Jesus. That it arrives on your doorstep one day, just like it's arrived one day on the doorstep at Thessalonica. Have you heard the gospel? Has it appeared on the outer limits of the radar screens of your mind yet? However, that's um, really just the first step. The gospel doesn't just arrive, it also needs to be received and take root. And that brings us on to the uh, 
second truth about the gospel that we need to notice here, and that is how the gospel takes root. Look with me at verse 6. There, Paul says that the same Holy Spirit who enabled him to preach the gospel clearly had also prepared the ground and enabled the Thessalonians to respond with joy in the midst of suffering. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And we can actually see what happened in a little bit more detail if you just look across the page with me um, to chapter 2 and uh, verse 13 to 15. It says, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and also drove us out. This is explaining in a little bit more detail what Paul means when he says that the Thessalonians responded with joy in the midst of suffering. See, the suffering that the Thessalonians were experiencing was at the hands of the Jews who objected to the message that Jesus was the Messiah and therefore began to oppose the new converts. In many ways, this was just to be expected, says Paul. When he preached at Thessalonica, he was forced to leave because of opposition. Even Jesus himself was persecuted by the Jews who chased him to the cross and crucified him. Therefore, in embracing the gospel message in spite of persecution, the Thessalonians were just treading the same path that Jesus and the Apostle Paul had already trod. It was to be expected. I think this uh, helps us get our expectations right for the week after next and the uh, show that we're putting on in the festival fringe. We shouldn't think that everyone is, is going to love us for it. Some may well roll their eyes, snigger, laugh, or even oppose it. However, there will also be some that will respond with joy and welcome the message about Jesus. That's the way that it always is with the gospel. Joy in the midst of suffering. There will be opposition. But the work of the Holy Spirit means that some people will respond to the message as it's proclaimed. However, I think we need to do a little bit more work on what it actually means here to respond to the gospel with joy. We are told there in verse 6 that the Thessalonians responded with a joy. But we're not really actually told what that means, are we? For that, we need to look on to verses 9 and 10, where we get a much clearer explanation of how the Thessalonians responded to the gospel. Let's remind ourselves of uh, verses 9 and 10. This is what uh, other people were saying about how the Christians at Thessalonica had received the gospel. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So then, what do we have to do in order to follow the Thessalonians' example and receive the gospel with joy? Well, the first thing it says there is that we need to turn away from idols. I guess this word idols might be a a little bit problematic for some of us. The best way of thinking about it is not of a giant statue of 
Buddha in Thailand, but whatever takes the place of God in our lives. An idol is really just simply a God substitute. It's whatever we choose to get ultimate worth and meaning from instead of God. If you look to your performance on the sports field or the golf course to give you meaning and a purpose, then that for you is your idol. There are, of course, lots of other idols as well. The pursuit of sexual intimacy, the relentless drive towards corporate success at work or the office, the prestige of being popular and so on. There's really no end to them. God substitutes. And what's more, we are all guilty because all of us, given the choice, always choose to live for ourselves rather than for God. So the first step in receiving the gospel, the first step in becoming a Christian, is to say sorry for going your own way and daring to put something else in the place that rightfully belongs to God and him alone. Then the uh, second step in receiving the message with joy is to turn towards God. You see, when you respond to the gospel, you don't only turn away from your old way of life, there is also a plus side to that as well, a, a positive side. You turn from idols towards God and make him the master of your destiny instead. Rather than serving idols which are empty and false and dead, a Christian is someone who lives for the living and a true God who is alive and active. We can see uh, what that kind of life looks like in verse 3. Someone who has turned towards God will be growing in faith and hope and love and their lives will be growing in good deeds and endurance and keeping going as a Christian, even through tough times, turning towards God. And then thirdly, and most importantly, becoming a Christian means pinning all your hopes on Jesus to rescue you from God's wrath. That's what it uh, says here about the Thessalonians. They responded to the gospel with a joy by waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The word wrath there means anger. Um, I think many of us often struggle with this concept of God being angry at us. Perhaps one way of uh, looking at this that's helpful for us is to realise that God's anger is not like human anger in terms of fits of rage or losing our temper. Instead it's his determined and unrelenting hostility to evil in all its forms and that includes the evil that we do as well. And then we can maybe understand God's anger, God's wrath even more clearly once we've realised that we are guilty of worshipping idols. If we take our value and meaning and purpose from other things that uh, shoulder him out and rob him of the respect and glory and thanks that he deserves as our creator, then we can understand why he might have issues with us and be angry with us. If we, if we fire up on a God substitute, it shouldn't surprise us that we're going to end up on the wrong side of him on the day of judgment. You see, that's where Jesus fits into the equation. He died to take God's anger that was coming to us. He died on our behalf, taking the punishment that we deserve, so that at the end of the age, we might never have to face God's terrible wrath. You see, Jesus is the rescuer, and therefore, Christian conversion absolutely hinges on what we do with him. We can never ever come to God unless we pin all our hopes on him and trust in him because he is our only hope. There's a story told from the Falklands War where a group of marines were 
pinned down by an enemy machine gun position on a hill. Every time they, they moved or tried to escape, there was this uh, hail of bullets that stopped their advance. Eventually, after this had gone on for a while, there was a young sergeant who grabbed two hand grenades, pulled the, the pins on them, and ran up to the pillbox, blowing himself up and everyone inside. See, his noble sacrifice had dealt with the threat. He had rescued his comrades from danger, but at the terrible cost of his own life. So then, what are his con contemporaries going to do? Are they just going to sit back in their foxhole and have a cigarette? Are they going to say thanks and start sunbathing on the hillside? Of course not. They're going to get on with their advance and charge up and take the hill. They're going to respond. And that's just what happened to the Thessalonians. They heard the message that Jesus had died for them, and so they did something about it. They turned away from idols, they put their trust in Jesus, and started serving the true and living God. Theirs was a model con conversion. The gospel took root as they came to believe in Jesus and experienced the new life that he brought. And so the next important question for us is, have we received the gospel? Has it taken root in our lives and our experience? Have we radically turned from those terrible modern idols of money, sex and power and status and trusted in Jesus and begun to serve God? If, you've, if you're not pinning all your hope on a Jesus, if you're not really that concerned about serving God, and if those idols are still things that are really big for you and important to give you meaning and kind of value, it may be that you're not really a Christian, that you've never really come to that point of trusting Christ. You see, this is the core gospel message that we need to respond to. We don't just need to hear it or understand it. We also need to do something about it and receive it for ourselves. Like those soldiers once we understand what Jesus has done, we don't just sit back and have a cigarette, but we respond to it. We let it take root in our lives and our experience. And then, of course, that moves us on. After the gospel has taken root, it also needs to spread. And that brings us to our third point, which is uh, how the gospel spreads. And we can see this uh, in verses 7 and 8. According to the text here, the gospel spread out from Thessalonica in two ways. First of all, it spread by preaching, or what we could call direct intentional evangelism. So there in verse 8, it says that uh, the word of the Lord rang out from the Thessalonians to the provinces of Macedonia and Achaia. Now if you're anything like me, your uh, ancient geography is not that great. So it would probably help you to know that Macedonia was the Roman province where Thessalonica was up in northern Greece. And Achaia was the province next to it where places like Corinth and uh, Athens were. And then the word rang out here is actually one of my favourite words in the New Testament. It means a thunderclap or a trumpet blast. The idea is that the gospel echoed and reverberated through the whole area like a clap of thunder that makes the ground shake and everyone stops and sits up and takes notice of it. It's a great image of the gospel spreading. The gospel going out with such force from Thessalonica that it's as if all the hills and, and valleys of Greece are vibrating with the distant roll of thunder as the gospel goes forth. 
The good news about Jesus was spreading with clarity and persuasion as the Thessalonians took it to the surrounding area. And then secondly, it says that the gospel spread by gossip, or what we could maybe call indirect rumour evangelism. It says that um, your faith in God has become known everywhere. When it says everywhere there, Paul probably means that it had actually reached Rome. I think Thessalonica was on some of the main highways there. But at the very least, what he means is that people throughout the whole area were talking and were gossiping about the way that the citizens of Thessalonica had welcomed the missionaries and embraced the gospel. In, in fact, Paul was almost out of a job. Whenever he went to somewhere new, they had already heard about the gospel because of what had, had happened from the Thessalonians. And there's some great lessons here for us. It reminds us that the most effective way of getting the message out is not via the media, but is actually when people's lives are changed by the gospel and everyone starts talking about it. You can just uh, think of that kind of thing happening in Edinburgh, can't we? You know that church on Rose Street? I must have walked past it thousands of times, but never actually knew it was there. However, just recently, I've heard that there are loads of folk who actually go, and they're completely different to everyone else. Apparently there was this one guy in an office with a friend of mine, and he just wasn't obsessed by work or by money or by overtime in, in the same way as the others were. He also didn't sleep with his girlfriend. A friend of my daughter's said that she knew his housemate and his girlfriend had never once stayed over. How weird is that? The other weird thing about them is that the majority of them believe that Jesus is coming back. So I've heard. I can remember talking to my neighbour's son who, who went there and he went off to Africa for two years because he said that they needed to hear about God as well and that that was the best use of his time in the light of eternity, as he put it. You see, that kind of thing could happen in Edinburgh. Change lives and different priorities rolling like thunder over this town. It won't have escaped you there that the important ingredient is living a consistent Christian life. Not only will we have experienced the uh, radical conversion when we become Christians, but that will continue as we live it out afterwards as well. It will be an entirely different lifestyle, new sets of values and priorities that will get Edinburgh talking about what God is doing here. So then, there is our, mo our model of gospel ministry. The gospel arrives, the gospel takes root, and the gospel spreads. That is the way that God is working in the world. The question for us is, where are we in relation to what he is doing? Have we heard the gospel? Have we received the gospel? And are we spreading the gospel? As many of you know, this is my last sermon here. And in thinking about it, I was thinking about what one thing I wanted to leave with you as I moved on. And I really believe that this is the model of gospel ministry that Paul gives us in these verses. I think the most helpful way of explaining it that I found is often like a relay race. In a relay race, people are only doing one of two things. They are either in the process of receiving the baton or they're in the process of passing it on. There just simply isn't a category for someone who receives the baton and then shrugs their shoulders, stands still and does nothing with it. 
It's exactly the same with the church. Either we're in the process of receiving the gospel, or we're in the process of passing it on. That is the model of gospel ministry that God has given us for this church and for our lives. There is no category, absolutely no category, for people who receive the good news about Jesus and then stand still. Everyone is to be involved in some way in passing the gospel on, whether it's through training others, whether it's through regular persevering prayer, or whether it's taking opportunities to speak to friends and family members yourselves. There is no category for people to receive the baton and then do nothing. See, very few of us here are ever going to be supermodels like Naomi Campbell. However, the message of this passage is that our church can be If we take these principles on board and live them out, then we can be a model church for Edinburgh and for Scotland, just like the Thessalonians were for Macedonia and Achaia and the rest of the Roman world. Let us then be faithful at receiving the baton and passing it on. Let us then be faithful at receiving the gospel and spreading it, hearing it, receiving it, and then spreading it to the surrounding area like a resounding thunderclap going out from here. Let's pray together.